0: Hey, this is Joe Caminetti Jr. Welcome to the BC Podcast. We hope it inspires you and helps you in your journey with Jesus. Enjoy the message. Hey, well, good morning. It's so good to be here with you today. We are coming to the very end of a series that we started five weeks ago on the book of Psalms. So if you're interested in any of those teachings or the notes, you could just go to believers.cc. Click on the Psalms, and it'll pull that up for you. And today, I'm excited to kind of wrap this up. It's been a lot of fun to be able to share these messages with you. And so uh, some of you may know this about me, or you may not know this about me, but um, I always was this guy that kind of had my foot on the gas pedal of life. Uh, And what I mean by that is, like, when my son started to get older, I can remember them sitting around one day, and we were just sitting there swapping stories, you know, It's kind of cool. Your kids go from being your kids to, like, friends almost. You know, it's really kind of a cool situation. And so they're sitting around, and we're talking about it, and they were like, Dad, you know, do you remember... Like that, you know, that you were always in a hurry to get somewhere because I, I drive that way. I'm not going to lie. I do drive that way. But they're like, you know, dad, we, we remember you'd be like at Disneyland and you'd be like 20 yards ahead of us going. Come on, guys, we can get to the next ride faster. We can go on more rides. Right. Of course, you're going to wait an hour, hour long line. Right. Unless you got the fast pass or whatever. And uh, so I would do that, and I was like, okay, I, we just started laughing about it. And, and then they started saying, Dad, do you remember what you used to do at grocery stores? And I was like, yeah, especially because we used to do a lot of our shopping at Costco. And Costco has some seriously large lines. And so I, I'm not joking. This is, I'm not exaggerating. I would literally sit there, and I'd look at all the lines, and I'd look at the number of people in the line divided by the age and speed of the cashier. And then I'd say, you stand here, Lori, you stand here. And I kid, I didn't really did this. I'd have them stand in these places. And then whichever line started to truck along, i go, okay, that's my line. And I'd get in. And I was like, okay, there is something seriously wrong with me. There's something wrong with me. I acknowledge it. I admit it. And I was like always on a mission. Even when I was you know, on vacation, I just couldn't seem to take my foot off the pedal. And my dad, who is 86 today... And really quick, we are constantly preaching to him, Dad, please slow down because he's always in a hurry. I'm like, Dad, you're retired. Why do you have to be in such a hurry? And it's just it's hard to break those habits. So there was a, a really uh, interesting story, a, a cardiologist uh, who's since passed away. His name was uh, Meyer Friedman. He was from the San Francisco Bay Area. And he and a colleague are the ones that sort of helped uh, create that thing that we now know as the type A personality. And some of you are students of personality profiles. Well, he and his colleague created the type A personality. If you don't know what a type A personality, it's sort of like what I just described. That's that person who's always in a hurry to get someone. They want to achieve a lot. Uh, they're they're wound a little tight. They can be a little bit irritable. Uh, they're more interested in the goal than you sometimes. It's just like, you know, they're kind of moving from one place to another. and And so he Looked at that, and he himself had had a couple of heart attacks, even though he was a cardiologist. And one day he had a guy come in and do some work in his waiting room, and this guy was uh, an upholsterer, and he was upholstering his seats in his office. And he said, Dr. Friedman, he said, You know, have you ever noticed how your chairs are worn? And he said, no, that's not something I think about. He goes, well, I do this. And he goes, normally on a, on a chair, the seat is worn more or less completely over the surface of the seat. But your chairs are primarily worn on the edge of the seat. And that got him thinking. He was thinking, hold on a second. Is it possible that not all of this genetic, but that some of the people I'm treating are type A. They're people who are literally living their life on the edge of their seat. They're worried. They're hustling. They're bustling. They're trying to kind of move, move, move. And they're living life on the edge of their seat to where they're so tightly wound that it's causing stress and heart problems in their life. And so that's where that type A personality was sort of coined. And it's sort of funny because if you think about it, we kind of live in a type A world, right? I mean, we live in a world where people are saying, hey, man, get all you can while you can. Just push, 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 push. Go, 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 go right? And we're always kind of moving. I love what Dallas Willard said. If you don't know who he is, he's, he was a great theologian um, who was also uh, the chair of the philosophy department at the University of Southern California. A very brilliant man. And he said this, and, and I thought it was profound. He said, hurry is the enemy of your spiritual life. Hurry is the enemy of your spiritual life. He doesn't mean that you can't be busy because we can be busy and productive, but being hurried is a different thing. And that's what when we're living on the edge of our seat does to us, we kind of have this hustle, this bustle. We're kind of uptight, we're at each other's throat, but Jesus is gonna show us an alternative way of life. And that's what we're gonna talk about here today. We're gonna talk about how you can have a different way of life. And we're gonna look at something that is meant to help us Live life outside the hurry up offense. And unfortunately, this is a psalm that we're going to look at today. It's really called the Psalm of Psalms. It's a psalm that, ironically, very often just gets read at funerals, but it's meant to show us how to live life. And so we're going to look at that in just a second here. And here's the main thought I want to get across to you today. It's simply this sheep were made for a shepherd. Sheep were made for a shepherd. And that's not bad. I had to get that in at least one time. You have to do that once, right? But it's a good thing, right? So I want to do something a little different this morning. A lot of you have memorized this psalm, but could we read this out loud together? And as we do, I'd like you to notice that this is not spoken of another person, but this is personal. The Lord is my, I. This is all very personal. Let's make it personal. Are you ready? Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Now here's what I know about life. I can choose if I want to. I can choose to be my own shepherd. I can choose to live as if I'm my own shepherd. But the problem is is that if I choose to live that way, then everything is on me. I've got to watch out for me. I've got to have my own back. I've got to take care of all the details of life. And so what happens is when I'm my own shepherd, it pushes me to a life on the edge of my seat where I'm worried about all kinds of stuff. I'm worried about my money and my finances. I'm worried about my marriage. I'm worried about my kids. I'm worried if I'm not married. I'm worried if I don't have kids. I'm worried about my health. I'm worried about my parents' health. There's all kinds of things that will just kind of weigh us down. If we're our own shepherd, then it's on us to resolve those issues. But if the Lord is our shepherd, then there's a different way to live. And Jesus told us that worry is counterproductive. It actually doesn't help anything. Like that old quote of Mark Twain, I am an old man and I've seen a great many troubles, but most of them have never happened. And we can live that way. And I love what Jesus said in Luke 12:32. He said, Don't be afraid, little flock, for it gives your father great happiness to give you the kingdom. First of all, we're called the flock. He's the great shepherd, and it gives the father pleasure. The father, just like you take pleasure in being a blessing to your kids, your heavenly father takes pleasure in giving to you. Psalm 103 says that we are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Now, I know that doesn't help my self-esteem a lot when I'm likened unto a sheep, but that's who I am, and I am a sheep, and you are a sheep, and we need a shepherd. So let's look at verse 1. I'm going to read two passages back to back. It says, The Lord is my shepherd. I am never in need. God, my shepherd, I don't need a thing, and yet everything about society is telling me I need more things that, I'm not in, that I am not in need. They're, they're telling me I am in need. Have you ever noticed just to sell you some kind of uh Let's just say allergy medication. When they sell me allergy medication, they don't just say, here's our product, here's what it does, here's the price, go see your doctor. They have a story, and the is about this cute little puppy dog, and if I just love my puppy, you know, it's like, it's like this really intricate thing. What is that? Those are brilliant marketing people who found out that they can suggest to us enough uh, in stories to make us want things that we don't really need, but we think we're in need, so we're discontent. How many of you have ever bought into that thing where I've got to have that? I mean, I've literally gone toe-to-toe with my wife. I've never won, but I've gone toe-to-toe with her before. I'm just kidding. But she, she and I have clashed over things because I was like, I've got to have this. She's like, but you know how much money that is? I'm like, I know, but you know what? You want me to be happy? You want me to be happy, right? I've got to have this. How many know a lot of the stuff that you just had to have? You know what? Years later, it ended up in your garage sale for pennies on the dollar. That's how bad you had to have it, right? But we we always think we're like one purchase away from what we really need. But the Lord knows what we need, and he wants to give us the kingdom. But he says, look, if you just make your priority following me and seeking me, I'll add all those things to your life. I'll take care of you. And so as a member of his flock, I don't have to go through life worried and hurried. Here's another thing. Most of what you and I know about sheep, if you're like me, most of what you know is not firsthand. It's through TV, right? I mean, I can literally think I've had a few encounters with sheep in my life. I mean, I've seen them at county fairs. Um, I've seen them when I took my kids to petting zoos, right? Uh, And I can think about when I was 14 years old and I was in Ireland and we were driving to my uncle's beach house in Ireland And we're on these little one-lane roads in these little tiny matchbox cars. Hopefully, they're bigger today. But we were like squeezed in my uncle's car. And we had to stop because this guy was bringing all these sheep across the road. And trust me, he was in no hurry. There was no hurry going on there. And I was like, that's kind of cool. I've never actually seen a real shepherd before, right? But most of us, we don't know much about sheep. But you know who did? The guy that God used to write this psalm knew a lot about sheep. You know why? Because he was a shepherd. That was his trade. He grew up as a shepherd. So he knew what all the responsibilities of a shepherd was. And he also knew what sheep were like, their tendencies, and what kind of help sheep needed. And so he begins to share with us that the Lord is our shepherd. And in John 10, 14, Jesus makes very clear who he is. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and they know me just as the Father knows me. I know the Father and I give up my life for the sheep for my sheep. So if you and I have made a decision to follow Jesus, then he is our shepherd. And look at what Jesus said in Matthew nine thirty six. because Jesus saw with eyes that we didn't always see with. How many of you know that when Jesus looked at people, he sometimes looked past the rough edges. He sometimes looked past all their failures and their mistakes. And he looked at who they really were. And he always called out who they really were in life so they could be that person that he created Him to be. And in Matthew nine thirty six, he says, and what pity he felt for the crowds that came because their problems were so great and they didn't know what to do or where to go for help. They were like sheep without a shepherd. Look, we need a shepherd. People 2,000 years later are not that different than they were then. People today, when they encounter struggles in life, they don't always know what to do and they don't know where to go. But we have somewhere we can go to, and that's to the Lord, our shepherd, because we'll never be in need when we go to him. And I think about this. um, I have three sons. My youngest son is 28 years old today. And and I think about when each of my sons were born, you know, even the oldest one, when they were born, it wasn't like, you know, I know we want to read books and get all this information about being a dad and a parent and all that. And there's nothing wrong with that, but there's something in you, right? And I was a little bit weird. I'm not going to lie. I was a little bit weird because, like, we'd have the baby come out, and then when they were going to take the baby away, I'd always be like, I'll see you later, Lori. I'd leave her, and I'd follow the nurse with the baby. I'd say, I'm coming with you. And she'd say, what are you doing? I said, I just want to make sure you tag the right one. I don't want to take the wrong one home. It was kind of weird. I did it with all of them. What can I say? But when I became a father, do you know what? Nobody had to really say, here's what you need to do for your sons. I knew from moment one, I would take a bullet for that kid, that I'll work two jobs. I'll work whatever's necessary to put food in his mouth. I will do whatever I have to do to get clothes on his back. That kid never had to worry about a thing. My sons didn't wake up going, oh, my God, where's our next meal coming from? Or how are we going to pay this month's rent? That wasn't their responsibility. I was their shepherd. I was watching over them. I was nurturing them, loving them, and making sure that they had the opportunity to be great young men. I wanted my ceiling in life to be their floor in life so that they could pursue all that God had for them. And if I am that way to my sons, how much more is our heavenly Father that way to us? He is the great shepherd. I will never be in need for I was young. And now I'm old. I don't want to say that. Somebody else is saying that. I'm quoting a scripture. It's not me personally. I was young and now I'm old, but I've never seen the righteous forsaken or his kids have to beg for bread. God is faithful. Verse two, he makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. What kind of sheep lay down in green pastures? Sheep who feel protected and not threatened. Sheep who are full because a sheep that's laying down, that's when they chew their cud. That's when they process. And he says, beside still waters, this is where they can quench their thirst and it's peaceful, and they're in this nice environment, and all of this is kind of leading up to what's about to happen in verse 3 because what he's doing is, I love what it says, he makes me lie down. How many of you know sometimes God has to stop you and make you chill? Like, I know people, personally, I know people that literally do not know how to sit still. I mean, they don't. Unless they're sleeping, they're always constant motion. I'm always moving. It's like God's like, I'm on my you lie down. I'm going to make you lie down. Why? Because God knows we need to recharge our batteries. We need to restore, our souls need to be restored. We need to chill. And so in verse three, he says, he restores my soul. Why is that? Because every one of us get burned out. Every one of us get exhausted at times. Every one of us hit that point where sometimes we can't take it anymore. I can remember when I was a younger pastor, there were just some days, and it was newer to me then, there were some days where like, Like, you'd start out in the morning, and you'd hear, like, person after person after person come in. And all they brought that day were problems. And I was young and, you know, didn't know that it wasn't like I wasn't supposed to just let all this kind of completely weigh me down. But I didn't know any better. And I can remember getting to the point once where I looked at my coworker on one of those days, and I just said, if one more person walks through my door with a problem, I swear I'm going to take this stapler and throw it at them. I'm going to just hit them. With the stapler, like they're gonna go, what is that for? It's like bad shepherd, bad shepherd, all right. But I love this because it says that he restores our soul. Well, why would he restore your soul if you didn't need it? Apparently, you and I need that rejuvenation, restoration. He'll revive our soul, he'll renew our strength. And how many of you in here? I know I have at least one brother in here that's a serious runner. the most I've ever probably run in my life is like five miles. But my wife, for probably about 15 years, used to run roughly a minimum of like four to five miles a day for probably five days a week. She'd take our dogs out, and she'd run. Sometimes she, if she felt she wanted to go harder, she'd do 10 miles. Now, I stopped doing miles on concrete because my knees started yelling at me after I ran. But here's what I know, even if I'm on an elliptical machine today. There's points where you feel like you're hitting a wall, right? Now, this is scientific stuff. They don't quite know scientifically why this happens, but they do acknowledge that it does happen. But you can be going and you feel like you're ready to just stop, right? People that run marathons, like they've come to the grind. It's like they don't have one more step. And then something comes along called a second wind, right? What happens when you get a second wind? It's like, I don't know what happened to all the pain. I don't know where it's all gone, but suddenly I feel the energy to just keep on going. And that's what happens when He restores our soul. It's like God is breathing a second wind into our life and getting us ready to keep going. We catch our breath spiritually. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. So what exactly does that mean? Well, first of all, it means that God has promised to lead and to guide you and me through this maze called life. And here's what I know about me. I cannot see the end of the road, but he can. I have not been to next Friday. Have you? Jesus has. Jesus has been to 2019 and back. He is both the beginning and the end. He is the Alpha and the Omega. He knows the end of the road. He knows where He's trying to get me, and He knows where He's trying to lead you. He knows where He's taking us, and we have to trust Him in that process. And so, what happens is very often when you're faced with decisions in life, I don't know if you've ever done this, but do you ever just wrestle over a decision that you had to make and you had to make the decision? Do you ever just feel like you're in a tennis match where like one moment you're saying, this is the right answer, and then somebody whacks the ball and goes, no, that's the right answer. And you're like, no, this is the right. And you're just going back and forth, and you're torn. And you're going, God, you got to help me. Well, here's the cool thing. God has promised that he'll help you make the right decision. You won't always be perfect, but he'll help you make the right decision. How do I know that? Listen to what he promises us. In Psalm 37, verse 23, for the Lord directs the steps of the godly. He delights in every detail of their lives. God is ordering and establishing our steps. Now, listen, this doesn't leave a lot of ambiguity to it. It's not like, well, he might sometimes and sometimes he doesn't. And it depends on how well you're following on that given day. No, it says the Lord directs. That's either true or it is not true. There's no in-betweens. God is ordering your steps. Yes, you may not follow perfectly, but he has a way of getting you where he wants to be. Even if you're going securitously to that location, God will still make sure that he's going to help you get where you need to be. Proverbs 16.9 says this, A man's mind plans his road, but the Lord directs his steps. What does that mean? We can come up with all these plans that we want to. And there's nothing wrong with planning. I mean, the Bible talks about the positive side of plans, but we can plan things. But at the end of the day, if we're following him, he will make sure that he gets our feet on the path he wants us to walk on. How does he do that? I'm going to tell you what I believe the primary way he does that is. is found in John 10, verse 3. For the gatekeeper opens the gate for him, and his sheep recognize his voice and come to him When he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. Listen, if I know your name, I know you. God doesn't just say, hey, sheep, over there, come here. He calls you by name. Hey, Joe. Hey, Susan. God knows you way better than you think he does. In a world with over 7 billion people, God still knows us. Listen, I don't know what hair I'm pulling on here. First of all, I'm thankful to have hair at this age, but secondly, I don't know what number that is, but God knows what number that is because all the hairs, all the follicles on my head have been cataloged in heaven. God says, I know every one of them by number. That's knowing you pretty well. God knows this very well. He's not unfamiliar with what we're dealing with. And it says that we recognize his voice and he calls us by name. Listen to this verse 4. For after he has gathered his own flock, he walks ahead of them and they follow him. Why would you follow him? Because they know his voice. And they won't follow a stranger. They will run from him because they don't know his voice. Now, I know there's all kinds of different phones out there, but, and I'm not, a, I'm not a snob, but how many of you have ever met a Mac snob? Like as if your PC doesn't even deserve to be alive or breathe. It's like, no, there's only Mac, Graham. I'm like, seriously, dude? Okay. But they have different, you know, phone companies and all that. But I tend to be an iPhone guy. I've got my iPad here today. But how many know, a couple of years ago, it was a really big deal when it came out, right? They came out with Siri, right? We have Alexa. We have all these different things, right? And so they came out with Siri, and you have the Siri feature, which I use all the time. But then in later models, they came out with the Hey Siri. Familiar with that? Hey Siri. And so the way Hey Siri works is you say, Hey Siri, and right away, Siri will respond to your voice. You'll say, Hello, what can I do for you? or whatever she says, right? Now, you could take that same phone into a room with 20 different people, and they can all walk up to that phone that's already activated that in that phone. You could walk up to that phone, and all 20 people could walk up and say, hey, Siri, hey, Siri, hey, Siri. You know what? She will not respond to them. Do you know why? She doesn't recognize their voice. If you say something to her, she will respond to you. She'll say, what would you like? Why is that? because that's called voice recognition software. What does that mean? It takes you through a series of questions where it's using this software to recognize your voice because what they know with voice recognition is they know that in the same way that thumbprints exist, there are voice prints. And those voice prints are recognizable. And do you know what God does with his sheep? He puts the voice print His voice print into our hearts, into our minds. I will write my word in your heart. I'll write it in your minds. God writes it in there. When we spend time in this word and we drink from this word and we eat in this word and we meditate in this word, as we spend time in this word, what happens? God's printing his voice. And then when he begins to speak to us, we recognize it. That's God. And then also there's built-in discernment for his sheep. We recognize his voice. But we also know when voices come that don't seem right, there's something wrong with that. I think I'll just run away from that one. That's built in discernment. So God allows us to be led by his voice. And then it says he leads us in the right path for his namesake. So, what in the world does that mean for his namesake? It just means, part of it means this that God's impact. or or that God's reputation, I should say, God's reputation is impacted by how you and I, as his sheep, choose to live. So, for instance, his reputation, I would say it this way, is all wrapped up in your reputation. And here's another place in the Bible where Jesus said, you are a city set on a hill that cannot be hidden. He said, and when you have a light, he said, don't hide it under a bushel. Don't hide it under this bushel, but let it shine. Why would we let our light shine? Why would we let it shine? So that people may see your good works and what? And glorify your Father who is in heaven. Oh, in other words, that the life I'm living out as I'm following him causes me to produce this fruit that actually gives glory to God. And Jesus said that in John 15:8, my Father is glorified when you produce a bunch of fruit. So God's reputation is glorified. By the same token, I learned my lesson. I mean, unless you've done some work for me, you might call yourself a Christian. You might have a fish on your business card. But I've been burned by recommend, recommending you know, Christian uh, contractors to people who've lost thousands of dollars because they weren't what they said they were. And some of you know what I'm talking about. You've been burned by people who had that little fish on their card. And you know what? God's reputation suffers because it's connected to ours. And so part of that is that God, is his reputation is tied up in our reputation. Um, And this is sad. I mean, one of the most famous people in history is Gandhi. And do you know what Gandhi said? This is at least attributed to him. He said, I like your Christ, but I do not like Christians. They are so unlike your Christ. It is said that when Gandhi came to America, that he went into the south, the deep south, where we know there's tremendous open hostility and racism, at least back in those days, because this guy died, what, you know, in 1950 or something. And because when he went into the South, he went as a very dark skinned man and he experienced all the hatred and the vitriol of these people who claimed to be Christians. And in his journal, he wrote that that was one of the reasons he would not become a Christian was because of how those who said they represented Christ treated him. Listen, for his Whether you like it or not, my reputation and your reputation, when we've made a public profession, they're linked. Think about what's in a name. When you're born, right, you're given a name, right? And that's one of the first things you learn to do is to respond to that name. Now, most of you know that my family originally moved from Northern Ireland to California when I was a little kid. And I was born in Ireland, and the three, three out of four kids were born in Ireland. And I had a very British name, if you haven't figured that out, right? My older brother, who was a junior, his name was Malcolm, right? Malcolm. And my name was Graham. Do you know how many fights I got into because of that name? I'd come home. we'd when we, would, when we would walk through a neighborhood, they'd say, here comes Milcom and Graham crackers, Right? <laughs> Milcom and Graham Crackers just showed up. Then we're fighting words, man. And I come home and I go, Mo, I hate that name. Why don't you give me that stupid name? And like, nobody has the name. And she goes, I, Graham Kerr has the, the name. I said, the Galloping Gourmet. I don't want to be compared to Graham Kerr, the Galloping Gourmet. He's nothing. You know, it's like, I'm in America, man. I'm not in Ireland anymore. Give me a name break, please. Right? But at a certain point, you know, you realize that. You just get comfortable in your own skin. It's just your name, right? And how, how, if I walk up and I say, hi, how are you today? My name is Graham, right? And what do we do? We introduce ourselves by our names. And if you live in certain places long enough, people get to know you. And when somebody mentions your name, what do they think of? They think of who you are. They think of your character. It's good, bad, somewhere in between. They think of maybe what you do for a living, your social status, your financial status. They think of you, right? They think of your reputation because your reputation and your character are attached to your name. And here's the thing, you know, when we pick names, what do we do? New parents, they get on Google and they say, what are the top 100 girls' names? What are the top 100 boys' names? And they pick these names out and that's cool. But do you know in the Bible, that's not how they chose names. The Bible gives way more weight to a name than we do in, in, in our society and how we think about names. In fact, in the Bible, names generally revealed your destiny and your character. And very often, if God wanted to change someone's destiny, he would give them a new name. Let me give you an example. How about Abram? Abram from Ur of the Chaldees, right? One day, the Messiah shows up at his tent and says, Hey, people have been calling you Abram for 99 years which means high father, high father. But you'll no longer be called Abram. From this moment forth, you are to refer to yourself as Abraham. God just changed his name and went from high father to a father of a multitude or father of nations. For he had him look at the stars and said, count the stars if you can. He said, I can't. He said, that's how many children you'll have, Abraham. And we are the children of Abraham. The Bible says by faith, right? How about Sarai? Sarai, we think that just means princess. Sarah, we think means mother of princes. How about Jacob? You are Jacob. Your brother is Esau. And Jacob, you're a deceiver. You're a cheat. You are a swindler. You'll connive. You'll manipulate. You'll you'll steal your brother's blessing. But one night when Jacob had an encounter with the living God and he was fearing for his life because he was going to cross over and meet Esau who he hadn't seen in a long time and he thought he was going to die. And so he's desperate. He's desperate. How many know desperation will push you into places in God's kingdom that nothing else will? When you get desperate, you'll do things you wouldn't normally do. And it says that he had an encounter with God and it says that he wrestled with God. And we know the story tells us that he wouldn't let go to the point that when God dislocated his hip and he walked with the limp for the rest of his life, he said, I'm not going to let you go until you bless me. And he said, you know what? I'm changing your name. Nobody's going to call you Jacob anymore. From now on, your name is Israel, which means prince who has favor with God and favor with man. From now on, you're Israel. How about this? Simon bar Jonah. Simon, son of Jonah. We're not going to call you Simon anymore. From now on, you are Peter. You are rocky because you're going to be one of the foundational pillars of my church. I'm going to build my church upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, and you're going to be one of them. See, names carry destiny. They reveal character. And when God in the Bible tells us he's our shepherd, it's showing us who he wants to be in our life. And God does care about the reputation of his name. And we could go on in just that subject. I think about some of the great intercessory prayers of Moses where we see God's like, I'm about to be like Colonel Sanders and make these Israelites crispy critters. Like, I'm about to fry them because I'm so angry at him. And what does Moses do? He pours himself into intercession and says, God, please don't destroy them. Don't destroy them, God. Just remember what is going to happen to your fame. What is going to happen to your reputation among the nations? Because the nations know that you split a Red Sea, they can't deny it. The nations know that you destroyed the most powerful army on the face of the earth. Without one shot being fired, you took them out. The nations know that they took all the wealth of a nation, and in one moment, all the wealth of one nation, the wealthiest nation of the earth, was transferred into the hands of a bunch of slaves because you were with them. They know that. They're going to say, you just brought them out there to kill them. And the Bible says... and. God changed his mind through the intercession of Moses. So God does care about his reputation. Listen to what John Piper says. I wish I could put this quote up for you, but just listen if you will. It just says, his name is who he really is, especially who he is for us. God delights in being known for who he really is. He loves a worldwide reputation. The name of God refers to his reputation, his fame, and his renown. The way we use word name when we say someone is making a name for himself. Or sometimes we'll say that's a name brand. We just mean a brand with a big reputation. So if I say to you, Apple, Microsoft, Ford, Chevy, every one of you have an opinion about the reputation of those companies. If I say Warren Buffett, you have an opinion even though he's given away almost half of his wealth, he's still one of the richest men on the face of the earth, a financial genius. They have reputations. God also has a reputation. And so what does it mean when it says he will lead us in the right paths for his name's sake? It just means that he's going to be glorified in your life, that he has purpose to do that. He's purposed to tie his reputation to yours. And here's what I know about following him, even when I don't follow him perfectly. Because of the reputation of his name, he'll find a way to get me where I need to be. And I've also learned this. I have more faith in his ability to lead me than in my ability to follow perfectly. I do stumble. I do make mistakes. But somehow, he still leads me because he's that good. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Hold on, God, you just got done telling me you were leading me in the right path for your namesake, and you took me to the shadow of death. I thought all passing God led to Disney World. No, God's going to lead us out of our comfort zone at times, isn't he? He's going to lead us into places that are challenging. He's going to lead us into places that sometimes have danger, because the valley of the shadow of death, it had it had predators. It had animals. It had thieves. It had robbers. And God said, I will lead you through there. And he said, by the way, you don't have to trip. You don't have to be afraid. Here's why. I'm with you. So we don't often think about God's protection for our life, but he says, you don't have to be afraid because I'm with you. How many of you know in Exodus 15, I believe it's verse three, the Bible says, the Lord is a warrior which is why the people in the Bay Area rejoice in the Golden State Warriors. Anyway, I'm just kidding. That that didn't get any laughs in the first service, so thank you for humoring me. He's not that kind of warrior. But the Lord is a warrior. His presence makes walking through the valley of the shadow of death possible. You know, this passage, Psalm 23, has walked through more funerals than any other one I can think of. This has walked through more hospital rooms than any other psalm or scripture I can think of. This is walked through literal physical battles. This is walked through the toughest times in people's life because it is a source of comfort. Why? Because God is promising us that's who he's going to be. I've got a rod and a staff up here. It's a horrible graphic. I'm not going to lie. I probably could have drawn one better myself. But anyways, you know, those are the weapons of a shepherd, right? One of them is when we kind of get off Kilter and out of line, what does he do? He just kind of gently puts that hook around us and kind of says, Hey, you know what? I told you to go right, you went left, but let me help you. Let me help you, right? And the other one, though, is a club. And what is that there for? If someone ever picks a fight with one of my sons, they don't know this, but they just picked a fight with me. If anyone ever picks a fight with you, they don't know this, but they just picked a fight with God and he's got the club of all clubs. God's got your back. And if God is for you, show me the person, the spiritual entity, the problem that is greater and bigger than your God. There is none. His rod and staff brings his comfort. I love what Eugene Peterson said. He said, our lives are lived in both the company of the shepherd and the shadow. See, it's, we're able to handle the shadow because of the shepherd. So we can walk through those seasons in our life. Verse five, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup runs over. So God gives us this five-star banquet and just feeds us out of the abundance of his goodness. And it says here that we're eating From his table, what in the presence of our enemies? You know, I don't know about you, but if I had enemies watching me, I might feel a little bit nervous. But apparently, God's protection and care is so great for us that we can sit and feast on him even while there's enemies present because he's got our back. He's taking care of us. He anoints our head with oil. Well, I don't want anybody anointing my head with oil, but what that means is I want your renewal, your prosperity, your joy, your healing to flourish. It's symbolic. It'd be like me on a hot summer's day when I used to do the yards in my parents' house and I would just rip my shirt off And me and my shorts, I just dive into that pool, man, and just come up going, ah. Some of you, that's a hot, hot shower on a cold day. God says, I'll I'll refresh you. I'll anoint your your head with oil. My cup runs over. That's talking about God's generosity and abundance. You know, I know um, when my kids were growing up, um, we used to, for a period of years when they were young, we used to, uh, along with all the cousins on Sundays after church, we'd all converge on my parents' house. And um, all the cousins, I don't know, there'd be like 10 of them up there and they'd be swimming in my parents' pool and playing around, having a great time. And here's the thing. um, My wife, Lori, in particular, fed us pretty healthy. Like my kids laugh about not being able to trade their sandwiches at lunch because it was like turkey on Ezekiel bread with wheatgrass. You know, it's like, you know, nobody wanted that sandwich, right? And it's like, so they'd get to my parents' house, and my parents didn't eat this way, but my parents stocked their fridges and their cupboards with all the junk food that they knew. If they knew that they liked it, there would be a a, a case of that thing. I mean, Snickers bars and chimichangas. And my kids would go up there, and, of course, what am I going to do, stop my mom and my dad from feeding my kids, that's not going to happen. So those kids knew. It's like, I got the run of this town. You're just like, you just sit there and watch. And they just sit there and gorge themselves on this food. But I had one son in particular, one of my sons, when we would say, okay, guys, we're going in five minutes, five minute warning shot, because you got to go to school the next day. This kid would go five minute warning shot, and he'd just grab hold of whatever junk food he could, and he would just gorge himself like Nathan's hot dog. (laughs) And I'm telling you, I can't tell you how many times, it'd Be like, pull the car over, I got to throw up. It's like, why do you do that to yourself? What am I saying? God is abundantly good to us, and he's given us abundant life, and we never walk out of there not having the overflow. Last verse, and then we'll close. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. God's goodness really encompasses all of his character and all of his attributes. It's like a house is made with many rooms, but it's still one home. Everything God is and everything he does is good. And so that's his goodness. And, you know, Psalm 34, 8 says, taste and see that the Lord is good. Oh, the joys of those who trust in him. And I've said this many times, but, you know, I could tell you how great my wife's lasagna is. I could sit here and brag about it. But you know what? You'll never really know that until you taste it yourself. And that's what God is saying. He's saying, hey, my goodness, isn't something you want to? get secondhand. It's something that you want to reach out and say, God, I want to taste it. I want to experience it. And God is only so happy to give it to you. Psalm 23, six, one last time and one more translation, then we'll close. Surely your goodness and unfailing love will pursue me all the days of my life. And I will live in the house of the Lord forever. You know, one of the definitions of mercy is unfailing love. I think about a song that came out a number of years ago by Kim Walker. And she did a song that was just, it just kind of blew up back in the day. And it was just. You just used to have this hook in it that would say, your love never fails, never gives up, never runs out on me. Your love never fails, never gives up, never runs out on me. And that is the love and the mercy that God has for us. It's never going to fail us. It's never going to give up on us. And it's never going to run out on us. And for that reason, we can wake up every day under his care, knowing that today I don't have to just fend or provide for myself, but I'm under the care of the great shepherd. What a great way to live life. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for all that you've done for us. Um, we're so grateful for that. And Lord, today, I just pray for these people. Lord, if if there's anybody here, Lord, that's just uh, tired or weary, that just needs a refreshing, Lord, would you restore them? Would you restore their souls? Lord? would you refresh them, Lord? Would you uh, just assure them, Lord, of your direction, your guidance, your protection, Lord? Would you allow them, Lord, to experience... Uh, that refreshing of anointing their head with oil and filling their cup to overflowing, Father, and just letting them taste and see how good you really are and experiencing your mercy. Father, we ask you to do that. And you know, as we close today, Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice. Jesus is the good shepherd. And the question I have for you today is, do you hear his voice this morning? I'd like to close this message by inviting you to respond to the voice of the good shepherd to not respond in a tentative but a decisive way because sheep need a shepherd and so do you and so do I but the choice is always left up to us so the question is are you willing to trust the shepherd today? Are you willing to follow the shepherd today? Are you willing to put your faith in him and in his ability to lead you and protect you to care for you? Because there is no shepherd like Jesus. Jesus said I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except by me so the way we come it's just through receiving him as our shepherd king and we do that by faith so if you're here today and you're saying i'm ready to make a decision to allow jesus to be the shepherd of my life to be the one that i'm following the one that i'm putting my faith and my trust in then i'm going to pray a simple prayer it's not a magic prayer it's just a prayer that when you pray if you pray it from your heart i believe god will hear you and he'll answer it so if if you want to make that decision today, I want to encourage you. Pray with me if you would. Church, will you help me pray? Just say, Father, I believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that he died for my sins, that he rose from the dead. Today, I confess him as Lord. Forgive my sins and receive me into your kingdom.